You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm going to start with a couple of uh, family fun Jeopardy questions. I'm going to put you to the test. If you're an overperformer, we're going to see exactly how you do on some of these quiz questions. Topic is Olympians, starting off uh, just nice and easy. Olympians for $400, a double Jeopardy question. Fittingly, the 2016 winner of the 100-meter dash is nicknamed Lightning. It's quick, somebody next to you, tell, t- you have to say the who is. Who is? And the answer is, for $400, give yourself a round of applause. Usain Bolt. Second category is hot potpourri. Like potpourri, but it's hot. Everything has to do with hot stuff on this one. This is for $1,200. Tell your partner next to you in a what is format. It's the last name of the Italian family who worked in aviation before Brother Roy created the first hot tub. What is a jacuzzi? It's the correct answer. Jacuzzi. Number three, number three. Inventors is the name of the topic. Inventors is the name of the topic. This is for 2000, the big kahuna. His first working model of the telegraph was constructed in part from an old picture frame. You have 10 seconds. Tell your neighbor who you think it is. Who is? Who is? Who is? Who is? Samuel Morse is the correct answer. Samuel Morse is the correct answer. Last but not least, the ancient world, the ancient world, the ancient world. Uh, the ancient world for $800 today. Kai, Kai Loon is credited with inventing the material, this material in 105 AD. Printing on it came later, and the answer is... The answer is, what is paper, ladies and gentlemen? What is paper? What is paper? How are you at uh, test-taking? Were you an overperformer? Uh, you just cruised on in there, and somehow the Holy Spirit and osmosis just made it happen for you. Uh, were you an underperformer? Did you just, like that SNL skit, just like go like this and get crazy whenever the test came out because you knew that whatever it is that you studied, the person that didn't study was going to get a better grade than you, and you were going to hate them for it and have to work through the forgiveness and the counseling afterwards? Like, they really got that, that serious? Or would you say that you got what you put in? You know what I mean? You got out of the test what you got put in. Um, I realized by senior year, because I'm not the greatest test taker, I'm not bad, but I'm not the best, is that uh, those smart people are just good at taking tests, y'all. Come on. It's serious. Uh, I had a kid named Vijay Ramanan. We had a lot of medical people. We were from uh, Indiana, and there was like Notre Dame and Catholic and stuff. There's a lot of hospitals and medical stuff going on. This guy uh, was so bright that he actually got his doctorate and his MD at the same time. Like, brother just went through college Skip being a doctor, just started teaching doctors. Like, that's how smart he was. We had another kid named Kashif. He was on the Today Show. He literally was on the Today Show for successfully recapitating a decapitated person. Saved their life. He had actually fixed his, like, neck at one point uh, through a normal, just, like, sports injury. And then he got into this horrible car accident. And, like, everything except for the one thing that you need for your head to still be intact was detached. And then he put it back together. I don't know if I really planned on getting that deep into that story. And I think I grossed people out. I didn't have that on my notes. I was with VJ. Back to VJ. I was with VJ senior year. It's the only time that us credence, you know, plebeians hung out with the higher class, you know, smart, smarty, smarties pants kids. And I realized that the day before the government test, good old VJ didn't bring his book home. I was like, VJ, I'm at his locker nearby. I was like, VJ, you got to bring your book home. We got government tests. He was like, oh, I forgot. 
I was like, you forgot? I was like, you never got anything less than an A plus, 106% or anything, and you forgot to bring your government test? Yeah, I just forgot. Well, lo and behold, we go in there, take the test. I brought the book home. He brought the book home. And I was kind of mad that I told him that the book, the test was coming because he got a better grade than me studying one night than I did, you know, the entire six nights because of a couple things that I assume about BJ. Number one, he's banking on the curve. Like if you're in a pool of people and you are going to get your PhD and your MD at the same exact time, you're probably going to be okay because that curve is pretty low when you're in government class and the curve is going to serve you well. Uh, number two, um, he also kind of just like, just learned really easily, and he was always asking questions and studied all the time. And that led to number three, which is basically like kids like that are just studying all the time. Like they're always realizing there's a test ahead. They're either going into a test, they're taking a test, and they're coming out of a test. So it might be helpful to remember the facts so you can always be ready to take the test. But if you notice on the Jeopardy question, like one thing that I, I learned both from teaching and taking a SAT prep course is that oftentimes when you're taking a test, one of the big tips you need to know is that the answer is usually hidden somewhere in the question. Uh, did you notice that, like, all of the answers, everyone knew, right, in Jeopardy, right? And uh, a lot of the answers were the kind of answers that you were like, dang, why didn't I answer that? I should have just risked it. I would have known. And VJ knows what you don't know. He would have just risked it and gotten the $5,000. Uh, is because, you know, Jeopardy, like, when you think about the answer, you have to think about and consider what is the question, because the answer is oftentimes hidden in the question. Nobody wants to watch Jeopardy and have the question come up and have the answer be something that they didn't know that doesn't hook you. Like, no one's going to talk about the moon and then be like, yeah, it was like David Wickerstaffer, you know? Like, the answer to the moon question is always, and I'm forgetting what his name is. I don't remember what his name is. Uh, the Apollo guy that walked in the What's his name? Neil Armstrong. The answer's always Neil Armstrong, and if it's not Buzz, whatever. Buzz Lightyear. No, Neil Armstrong's always the answer because they want you to say, ah, I wish I would have thought of that, right? I wish I would have thought of that. Um, uh, they want to create this like epic image of this like champion Jeopardy person that seems to know everything. But what you don't know or what you don't think about a lot is that really that person doesn't know a lot more than you. They just know a little bit about a lot of things. And so they're going to test you on the most shallow answer of every single question. And so if you just reach for the shallow thing, you might get it right half the time. Because ultimately the code is, you know, the code is, is that they want you to get this satisfying answer when the bell rings and the answer comes out that you wish you would have thought of the answer that was there because it was just always under your nose. So when you move on from high school, you move out of elementary school and college, you know, you think, oh, finally, tests are behind me, and tests are stupid, and trivia is stupid, and I'm just going to go do more important things in your life. But then life hits you, and the Bible really teaches you that you never get out of school and out of test-taking because life, as it were, is really just one big test, is it not? Like when you open up the Bible on page one and Adam gets into the garden, like where does God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Right in the middle of his life. Like the very first page of the Bible is a test. Will you trust God to be your provider and the source of wisdom and truth, or will you take matters into your own hand? That's the test. You move on, and Abraham has a calling, a voice from the Lord to leave the place that he knows, to go to the place he's not supposed to go. And then once he gets to the end of his life, has the baby that God always promises him and he never is supposed to have, and he has to be tested on whether or not he's going to take his son up the hill to sacrifice him. That is a test. You move on from that, and you get into the story of uh, Joseph, and, uh, and Joseph, you know, has these brothers who basically leave him for dead and have barbecue over his, like, body in the pit. And it's only by the grace of God that he gets rescues and goes into Egypt and saves his entire family. And in the meantime, he's got this mascara crying over his face because he realizes that he has to test his brothers to see whether or not they are decent, honest people, whether or not they're going to steal the silver and tell the truth and bring Benjamin back. Like, that is the test. Even Jesus... Before he does any ministry and the Spirit comes upon him, the day one before he goes and does anything is to go into the wilderness to be tested, that he wouldn't test God, but that he would be tested. And, and then 
at the very end of his life, at the end of his ministry, we find him in a garden bleeding blood, maybe, praying to his father, if there's any other way around this test, I wish he would take it from me. And he says at the end of his prayer that thy will be done, not my will. So ultimately, whether we like it or not, you know, you know as Forrest Gump says that life is like a box of chocolates, and Nike says, you know, life's a game and play hard, or whatever, Gatorade or whatever says that. The scripture tells us um, that like that SATQ and the Jeopardy questions we did, life is a test because life is a series of choices you don't have the answers for. It's a series of decisions in front of you where you don't have all the information you need and you don't have all the data that you need to collect of what's going to come in the outcome of that thing. And so therefore, life, whether we like it or not, is always, always a test. And that seems pretty cruel, right? Like God to be a tester, to be somebody that tests you. Like That's like that parent who read the text message on your phone but asks you the question to see if you'll tell the honest truth even though you don't have the text message that your parent has. That feels kind of like a gotcha moment, right? Or maybe something even more serious than that, that the Lord would put a bottle of alcohol in front of somebody that's being tested for their temptation of alcohol. That seems kind of cruel that God wants to catch people in their sin. Or maybe, um, maybe a test uh, from the Lord um, would look like, uh, maybe a test uh, from the Lord, <clears throat> where am I? I totally lost my test of your, your outline for your sermon. How about that on Sunday? Um, you know, pay, praying for patience, and then, you know, you always say when somebody prays for patience, they always give you the thing to be patient about. But, but the tests, like, like, the, like the, the cruelty of the test, or, the, um, or, or, or kind of like the, the, the subtle uh, tra- trapping of the test is really based on the heart of the person that's giving the test. In other words, if somebody sat down to you in a professional attire and they started asking you questions that might make you nervous... But that would only be if they were a lawyer trying to indict you, unless they were a doctor trying to heal you. So the information that they're trying to gather from you of investigation and testing you is really all about the intent of what they're actually trying to do. Here's the real reality of James, right? James 1, is that God does not tempt you. God does not test you because he wants you to fail the tests. The two types of tests you give in social studies is cumulative and formative tests. The tests that God gives are not to trap you, they're to teach you something. They're to form you, not to fail you. And they're to squeeze something out of you that you didn't know was there so that you can find out the greatest lesson that God wants to teach you in the test, which is that Jesus passed your test for you. That's what James says. We could read it on the screen. When, te- uh, when you're tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, says James. So in the meantime, like the enemy can be tempting Adam, and the enemy was probably tempting Abraham, and he was somewhere around G- Joseph trying to show him a better way or an easy way or his way. But in that temptation, God doesn't tempt. God is testing. He is proving. He's squeezing to show something in you that he could heal you and show you ultimately that Jesus passes all of our tests, either for us or in us. One of the things that I do not agree with like as an educator and as a, as a teacher before when I was in the public school system is group tests. Group tests are so stupid because it means that the smartest kid gets the grade as, as much as the dumbest kid, and the dumbest kid gets the grade of the, hardest, of the smartest kid, and, and there's no accountability. But ultimately, Jesus is a fan of group testing. He took our test with us, and he took our test for us, that we gathered around, and we took the test, and we get the results of Jesus. In other words, the situation that you're in right now where you are tempted to feel guilty or accept um, the burden of guilt on your life through your own internal monologue or somebody else speaking to you, in the middle of your guilt or the evidence that proves your guilt, 
you get the innocence of Jesus. You have the innocence of Jesus because he has passed your tests. Not later, not tomorrow, not when you get it cleaned up. Right now, you inherited the innocence of Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. In the middle of your grief, that you're going through a tumultuous time that is ripping your heart apart and ripping your life apart, and in the middle of that place, when you feel abandoned and alone, you inherit the, the intimacy of Jesus. That he passed your tests, and on your behalf, your record before God stands that you are innocent, and the closeness in the presence of God stands that you are intimate with Jesus right where you are. Even in the places where you've got it wrong and you haven't always said the right thing and you don't know all the answers, that you have the authority of Jesus. You are not powerless. You have the, you have the ability and the authority to make decisions in your life and around the important things of your life because even in the middle of conflict and when you're not always getting the right, get, saying the right things and doing the right things, you still walk in the authority of Jesus. And so this is what all the tests come to bear is that Jesus has passed all of our tests either for us or in us, because Jesus is everything. So let's read this, this passage together and see if we can spot the test that has come to the church in Acts chapter 15 um, in the Jerusalem Council. It says this, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. By the way, God covers, love covers over all sins, right? But it doesn't, doesn't just ignore sin, like, like it addresses the certain people. It doesn't name the names, but he addresses the issue. And this is what the issue is. See if you can spot the test that is coming to these believers. It says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. One of the most important things to know about how to pass a test is that you're in a test. And once you're in the test, to know what the question of the test is. If you don't read the question in the directions, you're probably going to get it wrong. So here's the test. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and a debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some of the other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. And the church sent them on their way as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria. They told how the Gentiles had been converted. Sent them right back through this, through this little path that the church had already made its way, started Jerusalem, went to Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. And so it's kind of like he's taking them back to the original lesson to see if they remember what was taught in the middle of this test as they go back through Samaria to go to the place of origin, back to Jerusalem. So the news made all the believers very happy, very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. And verse 5 says this, if we missed it, this is what the test was. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The answer to the question, what is the test in this uh, opening, opening stanza, these opening verses, is the same as every other test. It's the test that they were being tested by, the test that you were and are and will be being tested by. And this is the question of the most important test you'll ever make, right? Is Jesus plus nothing everything? In other words, is Jesus everything to you? That's how I'd say it. That's what the test is all about. This little uh, dream date scenario got created where, you know, this guy named Peter, preacher Peter, and then you had this guy named Corny say, it's corn, it's corn Cornelius, uh, had these two simultaneous dreams, and it brought them together, and it led to this really beautiful, uh, this really beautiful moment where this Gentile, you know, a centurion person, this military Roman ruler guy who was oppressive towards the Jewish people, uh, repents, becomes baptized, and becomes a Christian, the first, you know, fully non-Jewish, non uh, ethnically or culturally or religiously Jewish person comes into the kingdom. Peter comes into uh, this guy's house, Cornelius's house, and there's a baptism in the bathtub right there in the house. The first fully non-Jewish person comes, comes to Jesus and a precedent is set. But sometimes when you make um, 
you know, really warm, fuzzy, you know, passionate decisions about what's really true and beautiful in the world, sometimes you don't measure out the consequences. It's like, for example, when you get married, you don't always realize that when you make the decision to get married, you also get married to in-laws, and you get married to financial patterns, and you get married to behavioral patterns, and you get married to Thanksgiving in this place and Christmas in that place. Like, when you get married, you don't consider all of the residual ramifications of that decision. It's real cute to adopt a puppy until they become a dog, right? Do I need to say more about this, right? Sometimes the long-term ramifications will, will, will extend the cost that you were, you were anticipating. And so what's it like, like for my kid growing up as a good little Jewish boy or girl coming into the synagogue and then going to the table to have fellowship with this person that used to drink blood and their kids, like maybe had like animal or child sacrifices just last year and I'm supposed to just let my kids mingle with these people now? Right? The decision to come into the church and count Jews equal with Gentiles underneath the banner of Christ, right? Where are the standards that we're going to be measuring? Like if we don't have a law and we only have the spirit, and it's just about debate and discussion. Are we going to get anything done around here? If there's no standards, what's going to stop us from slipping? I was watching White Christmas uh, over, over the holidays, and they used to throw a fit over what Bing Crosby was doing tap dancing. Have you seen a TikTok video lately? Like the human nature of the slippery slope is a real thing. And if I got no standards, not just for me, but for my kids, like there's such a thing as idealism and then there's realism. Like if you don't actually have to become Jewish to love Jesus, like how do I know that the spirit without the law is enough? I'd have to trust Jesus that Jesus plus nothing is a whole lot if I believe that Jesus plus nothing is everything. And so that's their test and that's, that's our test. I'll tell you one way that you can tell that you're being tested. I'll tell you 100% of the time, 10 out of 10 times. This is how you know. You, How do I know today's a test day? You ever show up and it's like, I didn't know that today was a test day. Teachers in the room, you know, you told them there's a test, they still forgot. And the way that you show up to class knowing there's a test, here's how you know. You ready? If there is change in your life, you're being tested. If there's change in your life, you're being tested. Because every time that there's a change in your life, you're having to say goodbye and you're having to say hello to the new. Like, I was part of a big seeker-friendly movement. There was 10,000 people in this church, and I moved into Indiana University, Bloomington, and my church is basically Campus Crusade for Christ. And I loved church when I was growing up because I was the worship leader, and being a worship leader is super fun in church. You're leading worship and, you know, singing the songs, and you get to be part of the in crowd and all that stuff, and they asked me what my opinion was on stuff, and I would talk and get to preach sometimes and so forth. And I showed up to that college ministry, and guess what? I was nobody. And I quickly learned, right, the difference between my gifts and Jesus and why my gifts are not enough. And every time you change and go from one place to another, you are being tested in one way or another. Like, was it about the gifts or was it about Jesus? I had a super charismatic leader in that first church. I mean, it was like the Willow Creek model, and he could just sell a ketchup popsicle to a person in white gloves. Like, he was so funny and so charming and so gregarious. And I got to this new church, and this guy named Bob could have been more plain than vanilla. Like, he was not funny, and he was going through the Bible verse by verse, and it was so boring. And that's, that's exactly when you wake up one day and you realize, oh, that's the test. Was it about the leader, or was it about Jesus? I heard a great little word about this deconstruction thing, you know, the, the era that we're in. He was like, when you left your church uh, because you were upset about something that happened to your church, is it because you believed in Jesus or because you believed in your pastor? He said, if you got food poisoning at a restaurant, would you not go to any other restaurants ever again? You might have got hurt by 200 people. There's 3 billion. Did you interview 3 billion people in the world to see whether or not they were authentic and real, or did you just make the judgment based on the 100 people that you got stuck with in the church that you just left? What do you believe in? Is it Jesus or something else? Jesus plus nothing, Jesus minus nothing is everything. 
minus Moses, minus circumcision, minus the law, minus anthematic songs, minus uh, Sunday school, minus my favorite leader, my favorite preference, the geography, where the church is located. It's like Jesus plus and minus nothing is everything. And that's the test. Take it or leave it. And so Acts 15 continues, it says in verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider the question, this question, that question, but also the same one that we're sitting under today, is Jesus plus nothing, everything to you. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among the Gentiles, that the Gentiles might hear from the lips of the message of the gospel, or from my lips, the message of the gospel, and believe. You're going to see there's like, a, we used to call this in youth and government and teaching, a parliamentary procedure. Like, it's not just chaos and everybody just doing whatever they want and deciding their own decision and making their own little cliques. Like, there's an order. And you'll notice the three things that I noticed in this little discourse about how to, you know, handle civil disagreements within church is, one, reasoning. Okay? So, uh, you know, for example, like, um, I remember uh, seeing this, this YouTube one time. This, this guy was a hell, hellfire and brimstone guy, and he had, the, he had the sandwich board, and he was preaching it up. And this guy came up to him and asked him this question. He said, how long have you been out here? He's like, oh, you know, this is my name and I'm from here. He says, I've been out here for 20 years. He says, you've been out here for 20 years? Yeah, I've been out here for 20 years. I've been faithful and all this thing. And he was real kind, this guy that's interviewing him. Thank you for being obedient and faithful. And then he just asked him a really great question. He said, how many people have come to know the Lord through this ministry of you, you shouting at them? 20 years. He's been out here, 20 years. This is what the guy says. Zero people. Zero people have come to know Jesus after 20 years, right? So, so just because we're reading the Bible, right? And just because... Um, we are uh, uh, philosophically ascending to certain premise, certain doctrines, uh, does not evacuate us or exclude us from having to answer to reason. Like there's reasoning in this. James steps up and he gives this little prophecy from, uh, from Amos, which reminds us that not only that the church, when it comes against difficulties and tests and disagreements, that it doesn't just use reason, right? It doesn't just use logic. It uses scripture. And it should be, it should silence the room. Like when that... When that person reads the scripture and applies the scripture and it zooms us all out to remember the main thing, remember what this is about. This is not about where you get to sit in church and where you park and what your favorite thing is in your songs. Like, this is about Jesus. Remember that. The scripture and then ultimately testimony. So I digress. But back into verse 8. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith and then... Uh, purified their hearts by faith, verse 10. Now then, why do, you not, why do you test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And so the parliamentary procedure that you'll see through the, this whole thing is first and foremost that they, they reason together. Secondly, that they read scripture together. And thirdly, that they give testimony. Paul and Barnabas talk about the signs and the wonders and the things that the Holy Spirit produces in terms of fruit of these Gentiles to prove, once again, that Jesus plus nothing um, is everything. All that to say um, that this scripture not only shows us the preliminary, like primary question that that church and this church is going to be tested with, but also the method in which it's tested. In other words, uh, Jesus in this church is doing a group test, that these people are being tested together and not separate, and therefore, for them to find the truth and the answer within the test, they need one another to speak into one another's lives to find uh, the answer to the test. And so here's some, some common questions, right? So like, um, 
uh, uh, like you ever go to the math you know, teacher and the math teacher says like, you know, you didn't get full credit on this test. And the reason why you didn't get full credit, and this is so annoying, Andre, because you, know, you do this all the time. Uh, social studies teachers say explain. When you put explain, that means you have to like actually know what the answer is and why it's the right answer. Is the thing that's annoying about, about math tests is that you have to show your work. You can't just write five, right? You have to like go through the work. And so the process is just as important as the destination that these people are being tested, not only for the answer they come up with, but how they come up with the answer. Are they going to do it together or separate? Are they going to do it by the Spirit? And is, is there going to be actual truth and love integrated into this test? And so the very first thing that I see about not only what the answer is, but how to take the test, is that um, instead of slander, the church, is, the church chooses unity. Like they decide to send a certain conduit of people to go up to Jerusalem, even though Paul and Barnabas are probably like the forerunner apostle leader people that see people healed by their shadow. They're submitting to the elders that are in Jerusalem, knowing that they're probably going to favor more on the side of the Jews. And they're doing so within the context of unity. that They are seeking one another out um, rather than slandering one another. And so I had this lady say something to me. You ever have somebody say something to you and it didn't make sense? Matter of fact, you like fought it in your own mind until like 10 years afterwards, you agree with it. The lady said, if you're ever getting a fight, the vulnerable person always wins. I said, certainly that couldn't be true. The vulnerable person always loses in fights. Everybody knows that. No, the person who apologizes and the person who's weak and the person who surrenders, they seem like they're the loser in the moment, but in the end, they win every time. That the vindication of man is nothing compared to the vindication of God, and you fighting for your vindication is never going to be as, as real and as healing as you being completely vulnerable. And so I just paused right in that minute. Like, like you can't pass the test if you don't know you're in the test. And you can't choose, like, I wish this was a Spanish test, but really it's a math test. You don't get to pick what the test is. And one of the points of the test, I think the scripture is saying, one of the, the, the topics of the test to show your work is, like, are you taking this test by yourself or with somebody else? Are you allowing other people to speak into you? And are you being vulnerable enough? Like, would you rather would you rather be able to be hurt or would you rather move forward with your walls up and shields up and potentially be hard-hearted as the thing goes on? As you work through your tests, are you working with others um, and you're seeking others out? The second thing is that I noticed from this test, like the common questions that come up, the common question, this is how Jesus got tested, if you remember, is like, will the tester be tested or will they test God? Remember what Jesus says to the guy, to, to the enemy, when he says, turn the stone into bread, he says, Thou shalt not, in the King James Version, put your God to the test. Parents, what does that mean? What does that mean, put your God to the test, if you're a parent? What happens 10 times out of 10 when you tell your kid, like, hey, you got to pick up the pace and make your bed and clean your room? What is 10 times out of 10 your kid going to do when you tell him to go make his bed? It's your fault I didn't make my bed. My sheets were too tight. I couldn't put the sheets on. They wouldn't fit. Roger doesn't have to make his bed. Roger gets to wake up whenever he wants to. Like the, like, the, like the propensity of the person getting tested, 10 times out of 10, even if you're 40, let alone if you're 10, is to not be tested, is to test the one who's testing you. And that's the point when the parent goes, look, like I passed eighth grade, man. Like I make my own bed and put my deodorant on every single time. Like I don't need to be tested. You're the one in the test. Right? And so this, this is what he's saying. If you notice in verse, in verse 9, the temptation here is to not only not pass the test, but it's to project the test on God, saying it's God's fault. It's to test God that somehow the deduction here of Luke in this whole scenario in Jerusalem, the deduction is, is that by not accepting the Gentiles, the Jews are testing God, which brings us to a very important point. Probably one of the most important tests that we'll face in our lives is the test of grace. 
It's the test of, will I take the resource that God used to save me in my life and make it the source? Like, I grew up in a strict household, and it kept me on the straight and narrow. And so, therefore, I could be at risk of reinterpreting strict parenting as an exchange for grace. I don't need grace in my kid's life. I just need strict parenting. Right? That's how we get tested. Or like, I was on the outside, and I was bullied, and and somebody accepted me, and that was the hand and feet of God in my life. And so, therefore, the people in my life, you know what they really need? They don't need Bible, and they don't need church. They don't need accountability. They just need acceptance, and that's how they're going to receive the gospel. And if we mistake that vehicle for the source and the power, right, we actually see that we, we start to interpret that it's really Jesus plus something else that allows us to access the gospel. And so I just want to make this one comment just in terms of our church and, and where we sit in day and age uh, here, here at City Lights. Like, I think that all churches are special, and I love my church, and I love being here on Sunday mornings. And one of the, thing, one of the unique things that is going on in our church on a daily basis is just my pastoral, like, uh, litmus tests or something that I, that I kind of see, is that we, if you look around, have a pretty diverse set of people in our church. Like I kind of this last year was hanging out with a lot of other pastor buddies and stuff, and, and something that I realize is that I don't take for granted anymore is that there are some places where there's, there's this homogenous social fabric that exists in the church where people live pretty close together, think pretty close together, have kids that grew up with each other, raised each other in the soccer field, and did the, 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 the doctor stuff, and everybody's you know, all related, right? In this church, I don't see that. I don't know about you. I see a beautiful thing, which is people from all over different places of the map in Greenville, different denominations, backgrounds, different beliefs. Some of you guys would probably get in fistfights or at least debates about things that you believe in, right, if you were to get in a room together. Lots of different gifts, lots of different ages, lots of different generations. And I think that's a beautiful test for us to be in because that's the test that tests what we actually believe is leading us to Jesus. Denominations or Jesus. Age demographics and cultural backgrounds or Jesus. Social fabric and framework or Jesus. Like, one of the things that I think is really special about City Lights is the diversity, because diversity tests us. It tests us for things like grace and what it is we actually believe is the point and the vehicle that's going get to us, get us to the point. And so this is the final answer. This is really what Kristen read earlier. The letter is the final answer to the tests. And so it says in verse 24, We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization to disturb you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed, to, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit to not burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. I mean, us as elders, like one of the things, um, and I got this from Charlie Boyd at Fellowship Greenville, um, that is such a great compass for how we make decisions as parents, as elders, as believers in Jesus, is like, we don't have to have it written in the stars. Does it seem good to you? Does it seem good to others? And does it seem to be agreeable to the Holy Spirit? Then it's a yes. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And it doesn't mean that loosey-goosey, that grace means we can just do whatever we want whenever we want with all the consequence, with no consequences. Verse 29 clarifies it. You're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Like, sexuality, people say, like, why do we have this separate category? Why is gossip not as important as sexuality? Paul says that sexuality is a sin against the body. Sexuality is a root thing. There are fruits and there are roots, and sexuality is core and innate to a human's physical, spiritual, emotional development. It's a big deal, is why we talk about sex, and why we need to talk about sex. 
So sexual immorality is one of the biggies that they come up with. And so wisdom is able to differentiate. Love is the thing that sends Paul and Barnabas down to Antioch. They don't send an email. They send a person. Love sends a person. That's what love does. And wisdom doesn't just create this long laundry list. Do you remember the Coach K said at Duke? The one rule, don't disrespect Duke. Like, <laughs> there's one rule. Like, the more wisdom you have, the less rules you need. Right? So wisdom is able to differentiate between majors and minors. And so it's idols, blood, and sexuality are big deals for this new church that's coming about. It doesn't mean that everything goes. It means that wisdom drives the bus, not laws. And lastly, that there's leadership. Like, there wasn't this passivity of, like, y'all figure it out. They stood up into it, paid the price, put their reputation on line, and made a decision for the health of the church. And so authority and leadership was important in navigating through this crisis in Jerusalem. All that to say that then and now, that God is still up to the same thing in your life and in our life. And that is, whether we like it or not, God tests us. So here's your Bible quiz to close up. In the book of Genesis, how many times does Joseph weep? How many times does Joseph weep? Well, the answer is, of course, the one that Alex Trebek wants you to answer and be like, oh, I was right under my nose. What's the answer? Seven. Of course. It's always seven. That's the biblical answer is always seven. The answer is always Jesus if it's a who, and it's always seven if it's a how many. Seven is the number of completion. Seven is the number of perfect. And that is because the Bible is communicating to us with its heart, not only its reason, that God is a perfect tester. He's not wasting your test. He is not wasting and misusing. He's using every single part of your test to squeeze you until you're shaped to look more and more like Jesus. He weeps because he cares. He could save you from your test, the one that you're in. That one that's just annoying and pesky and you don't know why you're still stuck on it. And that one that rips your soul apart in the middle of the night. He sees that test and weeps over it. Because he could save you from your test, but he'd rather save you from your sin. And so he sits on the other end of that curtain. He could just come out of the curtain and just save you right now, but he has a better plan than that. Because the test is not to trap you, it's to teach you. It's to teach you the most important thing that your soul could ever recognize, not just with your cognitive doctrinal statement, but with your soul that Jesus is everything. And until that's really true of you, until that's really true of me, he will squeeze and squeeze and squeeze, and he knows that it hurts, and that's why he weeps for you. But he'd rather save you from your sin than the test. So here's the intentional question to process. Like if the answer, like go backwards from the Jeopardy thing, right? If the answer is Jesus is everything, then what is in question for you? Like, what's the question if that's the answer? If Jesus is everything, then what's the question coming up in your life? One of the hardest things that you and I can do as worshipers and as disciples and as followers of Jesus is to care about something without controlling it. Like, I waffle back and forth, you know, about being a pastor in the church. Like, it's like I care about what goes on here, and I care about you, and I care about City lights, and I care about the others. Like, I want things to go well, and when they don't go well, it makes me sad or frustrated. But I can't control it. And that's one of the hardest things. Because it's easy to not care about something if you don't control it. Right? And it's okay to care about something as long as you control it. But you know what's really hard for you and me? To care about something without controlling it. And that's where the test lives. Like, following Jesus doesn't mean you don't have bills. It doesn't mean you don't have a bucket list. It doesn't mean you don't care about stuff. It doesn't mean you're so heavenly-minded you're not earthly good, because then you wouldn't be testable. That's what we're trying to do with control, is to not be tested. So that's what the, that's what the test is. It's putting this thing before you and actually having you care about it, but not as much as Jesus. 
And that's one of the hardest tests to care about your kids, but not control them because you care about Jesus more. To care about your neighborhood, but not care about them more than Jesus. To care about your, your mission, your calling, your dream, all those things. Those are not bad things. But you waffle back and forth because oftentimes the things that we care about are the things that we end up worshiping. And so he's using that thing as a leverage, as a vehicle, the things you care about, to lead you back to his control, to his sovereignty. And so Ecclesiastes, if you've ever read it, I know this is like a super depressing thing for a preacher to say, right? One of my favorite books is Ecclesiastes. He's like, the whole thing, it's super frustrating. And this, at least it's a good book. If you're here, if, if you're not, if you're still thinking that everything's pie in the sky, then this book won't reach it, right? But if you've been through anything in your life, Ecclesiastes will speak to you because it says life's a sandcastle. And one day the tide's in and one day the tide's out. And you could work as hard as you possibly can and that dream won't come true. And he didn't promise you that it would in the first place. Or it could all come true to you and you didn't do anything right and it's all a big gift and it's all a big joke, but guess what? You're gonna have kids and they're gonna ruin the business anyways. So it all falls apart anyways. So this is the testing point. Like this is what it's really testing you about. If it's not about a long walk with a good friend, then it's not worth it. Like the whole thing, your business, your car, your finances, your spouse, your whole situation is all beautiful and good until it becomes ugly because you worship it. But if you can get that thing under the kingdom of God, you get Jesus and everything. If you put your stuff first, you lose Jesus and you lose the stuff. You could be on that vacation with your dream coming true and it means nothing to you and you can't figure out why because you, you don't have the way, the truth, and the life. You don't have Jesus. But if you were to put that thing under Jesus, this is the bonus round. You get Jesus and you get the things. You actually get to walk in the sun with Jesus for that day and appreciate for what it is. If the sandcastle rises or the sandcastle falls because they'll do both and you'll have your long walk with your good friend with Jesus. And that's what it's all about at the end to be able to care about something deeply but not have to control it because you know that Jesus is in control. And so that's the test. This is what the ultimate test is before you and me. Is Jesus plus nothing everything? Is he enough? Is he your reward and is he your supply? And at the end of the day, like if you look forward to your funeral, if the walk, the long walk with the good friend of Jesus is not enough for you, then you'll lose it all. Then you're not worthy of him and you won't get it. You'll lose the stuff and you'll lose Jesus. But if in the middle of this journey, as he's weeping behind the curtain, just wishing he could remove this pain from your life, right, and have both of these things. In the middle of it, if walking with Jesus through the situation that you're in is enough, then you get it all, that you'll seek first the kingdom and all these other things will be given to you. If Jesus is everything, then what is in question? Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.